Our Old Testament reading is from the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 26, verse 1 through 11. When you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving, giving you for an inheritance and have taken possession of it and live in it, you shall take some of the first of all the fruit of the ground, which, which you harvest from your land that the Lord God, your, the Lord your God is giving you. And you shall put it in a basket. And you shall go to the place that the Lord your God will choose to make, to make his name to dwell there. And you shall go to the priest who is in the office at that time and say to him, I declare today to the Lord your God that I have come into the land that the Lord swore to our fathers to give us. Then the priest shall take the basket from your hand and set it down before the altar of the, your Lord, the Lord your God. And you shall make, make response before the Lord your God. A, a wandering Aramean was my father, and he went down into Egypt and sojourned there. Few in number, and there he became a nation, great, mighty, and populous. And the Egyptians treated us harshly and humiliated us and laid on us hard labor. Then we cried to the Lord, the God of our fathers, and the Lord heard our voice and saw our affliction, our toil, and our oppression. And the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, with great deeds of terror, with, with signs and wonders. He brought us into this place and gave us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And behold, now I bring the first of the fruit of the ground, which you, O Lord, have given me. And you shall set it down before the Lord your God and worship before the Lord your God. And you shall rejoice in all the good that the Lord your God has give, given to you and to your house. You and the Levite and the sojourner who is among you, the word of the Lord. Be to God. Today's psalm is Psalm 90, 91, verses 9, 9 through 16. We will read responsively by whole verse. Because you have said, The Lord is my refuge, and you and have made the Most High your stronghold, there shall be no harm to you, neither shall any pain come near your dwelling. For he shall give his angels charge over you, to keep you in all your ways. You shall tread upon the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent. You shall trample under your feet. Therefore, He shall call upon me, and I will hear him. Indeed, I am with him in trouble. I will deliver him and bring him honor. Glory be to the Father, to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. As it was in the beginning, Our New Testament reading today is from the book of Acts, chapter 13, verses 44 through 52. 
The next Sabbath, the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, it was necessary the word of, the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and, judging, judged, and judge yourself unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles, for, you, this, for so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the, the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed, and the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city and stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and the Holy Spirit. The word of the Lord. Our gospel lesson this morning comes from Luke chapter 10, verses 1 through 24. Will you please stand for the reading of the gospel? Church, this is the holy gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to St. Luke. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, Peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking whatever they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in it, and say to them, The kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, Even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near to you. I tell you this, said Jesus, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For... If the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre or Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? No, you will be brought down to Hades. The one who hears you hears me, and the one who rejects you rejects me, and the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. The 72 
returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the powers of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in that, because the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. And in that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit, saying, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and the understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Then he turned back to his disciples, and he said to them privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, or to hear what you are hearing and did not hear it. This is the gospel of the Lord. Please be seated. We have been walking through the gospel of Luke in the season of Epiphany between Christmas and, well, last Wednesday. And we're going to continue that all the way through Easter. So, this is a story from Luke with a whole bunch of quotable lines. In fact, we just said one in the great litany prayer that we prayed, where Jesus says that the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. So pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into that harvest. And this comes immediately after the end of chapter 9, where someone says to Jesus, hey, I want to follow you. And Jesus says, okay, um, get rid of every single one of your possessions and follow me. And another person says, Jesus, I want to follow you, but first let me go bury my father. And Jesus says something that sounds very harsh to our ears. He says, let the dead bury the dead, but you, you come and follow me. And here we're seeing exactly what he's sending his followers out to do. So what are we supposed to make of this? This kind of travelogue story of Jesus giving instructions and equipping and then sending them out and then pronouncing judgment or, or woe or misery on certain cities. And then the disciples come back and they're absolutely overjoyed at what Jesus has done through them. What are we supposed to do with this? Because the question that I always ask when I come to gospel passages like this, when Jesus is talking to his disciples, is that just for them? Or is it for, like, all leaders in the church? Or is it for every single Christian? Because there's a lot of times where, like, in this instance, Jesus, is basic, Jesus says to them, I've given you the authority to heal people and cast out demons and to tread on the heads of serpents and scorpions. Was that just for those 70 or 72? Depending on, there's actually some discrepancy as to whether it was 70 or 72. Was that, was that just for these 70 people? Was that for all church leaders at that time? Was that for all, am I supposed to be able to heal people and cast out demons and stamp on serpents' heads? Is that for every Christian? I think that it's the kind of thing that really takes wisdom as we, as, we read through the, as we read through the Gospels, if you kind of put them against the backdrop of the rest of Scripture. What are we supposed to make of this? Well, I think more important than that, because that's the question everybody always asks, but more important than that is, what is Jesus telling us about him and his kingdom through this story? 
And I think it, it breaks down into three pieces. There's Jesus giving instructions, which I think we can glean a lot from. There's Jesus pronouncing what the consequences are. And then, ultimately, it comes back to Jesus at the center. So he gives some pretty instructions to his followers, pretty interesting instructions to his followers. He's, he's sending them out ahead of himself. So they're like heralds or messengers, the exact same kind of herald or messenger that would have gone, that would have come out from the king's castle or from the battlefield with a, with a euangelion, with a gospel proclamation of good news. The, the, the baby king has been born or the battle is won and, and we won the war. And so he's sending these people out as heralds as messengers. And N.T. Wright thinks that there's a certain urgency to this passage, and I think he's right. He thinks that because Jesus knows this is the last time he's going to go to each one of these towns that he's sending. Earlier in chapter 9, there's, a, there's kind of an iconic moment where, where it says that, that Jesus turned his face to Jerusalem. Because from here on, from, chap, from the middle of chapter 9 all the way through the end, this is a march that Jesus is going on to Jerusalem to the cross. And so the urgency that he's sending these people out with is, this is my last chance to talk to anybody in these towns. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Pray earnestly for the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into this harvest. So maybe the point here that Jesus is making is not that these disciples are supposed to go and just make converts. They're not just maybe supposed to go and make people who will name the name of Jesus. Maybe they're supposed to make disciples. Maybe they're supposed to raise up new workers to continue this harvest. So he gives them these instructions, and I think that although the command to not wear sandals or bring a money bag or a knapsack is not for all Christians everywhere at all times, I think that we can glean something about how we are to live our lives from this. Because the commands that he's giving them sound a little odd, but everything boils down to an issue of trust. Remember, Jesus is the good shepherd. He is the good shepherd who takes care of his sheep. But if he is sending his sheep out, as he tells them explicitly, he says, I am sending you out like lambs in the midst of wolves. Like, there's no arguing about what that looks like. Like, he's basically saying, you guys are going to be a snack. But if Jesus is the good shepherd, he knows that. And if he's watching out for them with his rod and his staff, then this comes down to an issue of trust. Verse 4, carry no money bag, carry no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. No money bag. Jesus is saying, put your trust in me. I'm, I'm going to provide for all your needs through the people that I've appointed to do it. Carry no knapsack and no sandals. This is part of the urgency. We don't have time to pack. We have to go now. And greet no one on the road. I have to be honest with you. I had no idea what that meant. I had to look it up. R.C. Sproul said that, according to the custom of the time, any time two travelers met on the road, it was, it was considered basic common courtesy to stop and to have a protracted, extended conversation about the weather or the condition of the road or where you're from or where I'm from. Jesus is saying, we don't have, we, unfortunately, we don't have time for that, those kind of niceties. We have to go. And so each one of these pairs of people had been assigned a specific place to go and he wanted them to get there as soon as possible. Then he gives them instructions about what to do in the town. He says, whenever you enter, whatever house you enter, first, say, peace be to this house. 
And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. That is, your greeting, your blessing in the name of God will, will rest on that person. But if not, don't worry about it. It hasn't been wasted because that blessing that you're giving them was just simply returned to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking whatever they provide. Do not go from house to house. Quite simply, that means don't try and trade up to a better place to stay. If you entered this town and you, the first people that you meet and you go into their house and it's not super great, and then a couple, a couple days later, as you're proclaiming this good news about the king who's going to arrive in this town in a few days, if you meet another family, and they've got a really nice house, and they've clearly got a lot of money, and they like you, you don't get to just pack up your stuff from the first house and go to the second house. We see this even today, I think. You know, it's such a, it, it's such a common human reaction to, okay, so... You know, you start, when you're in high school, you start dating some guy. And then a couple weeks later, here comes the, to use a horrible cliche, here comes the captain of the football team, and he's showing interest in you. Are you just going to dump this guy who's been, you've got a great thing going with him. He's nice, you like him, he treats you well. You're just going to dump him because the captain of the football team's here? It's a very common reaction. But it is antithetical to what Christianity is. I mean, it's just the opposite. But we see this today, I think. And Jesus warns his disciples against this, and I think we would do good to hear it. We see people who use their Christianity as a way to try to craft a good life for themselves. Or people who use it as a way to climb some social ladder of influence. Now, you can't spend any time in Luke and think this is how Jesus would like us to behave. I mean, yes, Jesus would hang out with the influencers of his day. We see stories of him dining with Pharisees and talking with the, the rulers of the day. But he spent most of his time with the poor, and the sick, and the downtrodden. Remember, he wasn't here, he said this himself, he wasn't here to save those who didn't, reali who didn't realize that they need saving. He was here to save those who did. He was here to save those who knew they were broken and needed a savior. Foreigners, prostitutes, cripples, lepers, notorious sinners around town. That's who Jesus spent time with. So that's what he's talking about here. Don't try to climb a social ladder when you're doing my work. That's not me. He goes on to say, Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you, heal the sick in it, and say to them, The kingdom of God has come here to you. That's, by the way, that's literally the gospel. The kingdom of God is at hand. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go out into its streets and this is, if you ever heard the phrase, shake the dust off your feet. Go out into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we are going to wipe off against you. We're going to leave it here. We're going to leave you all to your own devices. Good luck to you. But he ends with this. He ends even with, even, even that, he ends with a note of grace. He t he's telling them to say, we're going to wipe the dust off our feet. Best of luck. But nevertheless, know this, just like a final plea to them, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near to you. Even in leaving, there's still a message of gospel proclamation. And so at this point, all 70 of these guys are going to sound like mini John the Baptist, like going ahead of God, preparing a way, preparing the way of the Lord, sent out in, in advance of the coming king. And this is another way that Jesus completely debunks something that is rampant in our world today as it was back then, the idea of the myth of neutrality. 
when people are presented with the gospel, when they are presented with the truth of who God is, who God became, what God has done, is doing, and is going to do, when they're presented with that, there's a way to think, well, I can, I might take that, but I might just kind of remain neutral to it. Jesus, Jesus is clear. You're either with him or you're against him. There's really no third option. So does that mean that we get to be rude to people? Does that mean that we get to try to belittle them, stir up trouble as we're making this gospel proclamation, we're going to wipe the dust off our feet and, you know, say best of luck? I don't think so. I don't think so because if you take the Bible as authoritative and if you take it that it's all the inspired word of God, then it can't contradict itself. And so we have to pair instructions like this about wiping the dust off of our shoes. We have to pair that with Paul's command to Christians in Romans 12, where he says, bless those who persecute. Where he says, live in harmony with others. Don't be haughty. Don't repay evil for evil. And if possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. So even when we are making this proclamation of the fact that this world does have a king and his name is Jesus, we don't get to be haughty about it. We have to be humble about it. So how does that work? I think it means that all of us are to act like Jesus acted, which is to say confident, supremely and ultimately confident in the message, but humble in the presentation. Confident in the message, but humble in our interactions with them. Because nobody in the entire Bible spoke more about judgment, about the final judgment, about destruction, and the fact that people who didn't follow God were going to hell. Nobody in the Bible spoke more about that than Jesus. Absolutely nobody. But people will say, I thought Jesus was just like a sweet and kind teacher. He was a friend of the children, the poor, that he was humble, meek, and lowly. And he is, because both of those things are true. The message that he was bringing was a message of truth. The way that he was bringing it was in meekness. He's the righteous king who will bring judgment on his creation for their sin. And he's the lamb of God sacrificed for the sin of the world. Strong in his message, humble in his interactions. I think, I think there is a lesson there for us. Possible. So how do we reconcile those? What are we supposed to do with this God who is so gracious in his offer of peace, in his offer of, of grace to un, undeserving sinners, the free gift of eternal life to undeserving sinners? How are, we supposed to be, how are we supposed to reconcile a God who's so gracious and yet is so crystal clear on his judgment about people who don't accept his gospel? And this gets us into the second part where Jesus just starts kind of throwing bombs. He starts listing off a bunch of cities. Sodom, Chorazin, Bethsaida, Tyre, and Sidon. If you don't know these, it's just going to sound like a bunch of random town names. You know, I, I have moved a lot in my life, and every time I get to a new place, I will invariably find myself asking someone for directions to a different town, or I heard that there's such and such in a different town. Where is that? And, you know, so... Where's, I'm trying to get to Statesville. Is that far from here? Oh, no, it's just out past Hendersonville. Okay, where's that? Oh, if you just, if, to get to Hendersonville, just act like you're going to Lombard and then go a little north. Fantastic. 
Where's that? And eventually they'll get around to, well, how much of this area do you know? Not, nothing. I know nothing. I know exactly. I know where I am right now. I know where my home is, and I know where the grocery store is because I can see it from my home. I, have, I know nothing about where I am. A lot of times when we read the Bible, all of the town names can sound exactly like this. If you don't know what they are, your eyes just glaze over, and you just go, I, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe, maybe I'll just keep moving on. We'll find a parable. I might understand that. So, if you don't know Sodom or Chorazin or Bethsaida or Tyre or Sidon, you just want to skip over this. But here's what Jesus is saying. Here's, here's what he's telling him. He's saying, if you go into a town and it doesn't receive you, it will go better on the day of judgment for a city that was literally destroyed by fireballs raining down from the sky. It's going to be better to be there than it is to be in a town that doesn't receive you. That's Sodom. Then he says, Woe to you, Chorazin and Bethsaida. Chorazin and Bethsaida and Capernaum. Three little towns up in the north of Israel around the Sea of Galilee. Jesus is from Capernaum. Peter, Paul, and Philip, Peter, Andrew, and Philip are from Bethsaida. We know nothing else about Chorazin other than it was right next to those. So here's what he's saying. This is a place where Jesus and his disciples, these are three little towns, Capernaum, Bethsaida, Chorazin, where Jesus and his disciples were known, where, where miracles had happened, where great teachings had happened. What he's saying is, it's going to be better for foreign cities that have never heard this stuff than it is for the towns where we have been working in for years and nobody Nobody followed us. Because Jesus here is using a very old and recognizable form of prophecy called a woe oracle. Like, woe to you, Chorazin and Bethsaida. He, he actually said that a couple chapters ago in the, in the Sermon on the Plain. You know, blessed are you if you are poor. Blessed are you if you are meek. But woe to you if you are rich. Woe to you if you are unjust. It's a, it's a woe oracle. It's pronouncing in the same way that blessed are you if you are poor, um, the word there is makarios, and it actually just means happy. So it's a pronouncement that if you are poor, if you are meek, if you are righteous, that you will find happiness, that you will be happy ultimately. And so the opposite of that, the woe, which the word in Greek is actually woe, or real close. Woe to you if you are rich. Woe to you if you are unjust. He's prophesying. He's telling them the fact that they are, in fact, not going to be happy. They are going to be miserable. So basically what he's saying is this. Dear Bethsaida and Chorazin and Capernaum, you are going to be miserable if you do not receive this gospel. If Tyre and Sidon, two cities in, well, Tyre's in Lebanon, and I forget where Sidon is, and I should know, but I don't. These foreign cities of Gentiles, the judgment day of Jesus is going to go better for them than it is for places where Jesus was literally walking and ministering and bringing his gospel. Tyre and Sidon would, would end up looking like Nineveh, where, J where Jonah the prophet went, and he preached to them repentance, and the entire city repented. Tyre and Sidon are going to look more like that. And I want to take a brief tangent here, because this brings up an interesting point that probably deserves its own sermon, and, and someday it will, but so sometimes non-Christians, or even Christians, will say, how on earth is it fair that Jesus is going to judge everybody, whether they are a follower of his or not? What about all the people that lived before him? What about all the people that live on a remote desert island in the South Pacific who have literally never, ever, ever, ever 
heard the word Jesus. How is that fair? And I don't know why this doesn't get talked about often enough, but the Bible actually does. And it's another example of God's grace. It, it, it's a much longer conversation, but you just, I'm going to distill it as best I can. The Bible says that people are going to be judged on the amount of light that they have been exposed to. Which means people are going to be judged on the amount of revelation or gospel that they have been exposed to. The Bible clearly says that the knowledge of God is written on the hearts of every person. And it goes on to say that the law of God, that is basic morality, right and wrong, is written on the hearts of everyone. So, for places like Chorazin, Capernaum, Bethsaida, where Jesus and his disciples literally walked, you, you can go to Capernaum today. I've been there. You can go to the synagogue in Capernaum, and you can stand in the same place that Jesus did. He was there. So those places where the gospel has come fully and richly and frankly in person, those places are going to be judged a lot more harshly than the man or woman living on a remote desert island who's literally never heard any of this, but who has the knowledge of God written in her heart, who has the law of God written in her. As Jesus says, to whom much, this is why he's saying it, to whom much is given, much will be expected. So anyway, that was a little tangent about how is it that God can judge people who've never heard the name of Jesus? Because people are going to be judged by as much of God's truth they will have been exposed to. Speaking of God's truth, this is the part in the, um, in the passage where Jesus helps them reframe what this is all about with him at the center. The disciples come back from their, from their journey, from preparing the way of the Lord. The disciples come back and they are amazed and they can't wait to tell Jesus. And his reaction always makes me laugh. Jesus had sent them out with instructions and they came back and they said, you're never going to believe this. It actually worked. And Jesus was like, I know. I did it. The disciples said, even the demons obey you. Jesus said, I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning. And if you know anything about the timeline of the Bible, he's basically saying, I knew this would work. I know what I'm doing. I was here before any of you were created when Satan and his angels were cast out of heaven. That was, we don't know when, but we know it was before the creation of man. So he's saying, I am so much more at the center of this than you guys seem to have picked up on. And even at this moment, he is pointing to himself. He's reminding them of who this is all about, and he's pointing to God. He's pointing to himself as God. He says, do not rejoice in the power that you have or in the results that you're getting. Rejoice, in fact, that your name is written in the book of life. And then he says something that sounds kind of out of place. In verse 21, he says, in the same hour he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit. And he says, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and the understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. What is he saying here? I think that once again, the same with the instructions at the beginning, that this is about trust. Everything comes back to trusting in Jesus. It's, it's very easy in this world for wise people and understanding people to lean on their own wisdom and their own understanding when things happen to work out for them. It's easy for them to strategize, 
plan. But what's hard is trusting. Jesus says to them, I'm going to send you out as lambs among wolves. What is he saying there except, trust me? He says, don't take any money, don't take any stuff, don't take any shoes. What is he saying there except, trust me? And that's what I think he means when he says that, that these things, these things of his, his gospel, his plan, his mission, they're hidden from wise and understanding people, but they're delivered to little children. He's saying you are completely and thoroughly unequipped for the task that I'm giving you. I have chosen you like little children. And I know that because I'm the one who made everything. So in full knowledge of how unprepared you are, I'm sending you out anyway. Trust me. That's the part that I think is applicable not just to the apostles or to the early church, but to all Christians. Trust me, says Jesus. Don't rejoice, Jesus says to his disciples. Don't rejoice in what you're able to do, even though it's a good thing that you did and I gave you the power to do it. You're healing the sick. You're raising the dead. You're, you're casting out demons. That's great. Don't rejoice in that. Rejoice in the fact that I am trustworthy and I know you and I love you and I have brought you into this kingdom and into this family and so I have written your name in my book of life. That's the thing to celebrate. Trust me, says Jesus. Jesus says, I am, I am confident that you are absolutely not up to the task that I've given you. Go do it anyway. Trust me. I didn't choose you because you're wise or understanding. I chose you because I chose you. I got to make the choice and I chose you. And I don't love you because of the things that you've done. I love you because I love you. It was my choice and I got to make it. So finally, God has given not just these 70 or 72 people, but he has given everyone in his kingdom work to do, right? We pray it every week at the end of our service. And now, Father, send us out to do the work that you have given us to do. And from a human perspective, we are thoroughly unequipped for that work. Like part of the, part of the reason that the church gathers on a Sunday is not only to worship God and praise him for what he's done, but also for us to be fed and equipped. My friend Jonathan Noel says that, that, this is, that the church is the gymnasium where we, where we train and where we get built up, ready to go out and do our work. So from a human perspective, by the time we leave here, we are absolutely no more equipped than we were before. I mean, we came together, we prayed, we listened to someone read out of a book, we sang a song, and then we ate a little bit of bread. That's not enough for the journey that we have in front of us. But Jesus is saying that it is. Jesus would say, trust me, I am enough. Every way that I give myself to you, in my word, at the table, I am enough. And so as we journey with Jesus through Lent, as we walk with him toward Jerusalem and to the cross, we see that, in fact, he is the one who is the sacrificial lamb. But we also know that he is the one who is the great king and judge. He is the strongest among us, and he is the most humble among us. We see that Jesus was meek and lowly, 
because he humbled himself to death on a cross. He himself was the lamb that was sent out to be among wolves. The perfect spotless lamb sacrificed. He died so that we could all live. Trust him today. Let me pray. God, we pray that as we are sent out to do the work that you have given us to do, that we would be reminded of these two-by-two, 70 or 72 disciples who were sent out as as an advance team, who were sent out as heralds, heralds and messengers to point to the one who is to come. I pray that in some small way, Lord, in each of the places that you've put us, that you would equip us and empower us and remind us this week that we are that we are able and commanded to be like that. Maybe we're not going to cast out demons or heal the sick. Maybe maybe we're not going to crush serpents under our heels. But that we are equipped to do that as well. To be a herald and a proclaimer of you. To be witnesses to the grace that you have given to your creation and, and, and to us sending your son to die the death that we should have died so that we can live. It's in his name that we pray these things. There is no time where I'm going to stand between the congregation and the Lord's table. That's on purpose. In the Anglican church and historically in many um, post-Reformation Protestant churches, the pulpit or the lectern is always off to the side. That's not an accident. The reason for that is that nothing should stand in the way of God's people and God's covenant feast, the Lord's Supper. Except today. Except on the first Sunday of Advent and the first Sunday of Lent. Um, this is something that is sometimes referred to as fencing the table. We, we talk about this feast a lot. We talk about the Lord's Supper a lot. And it is a good thing. It's a great thing that everyone gets to come to. If you've been baptized, if you are a follower of Jesus, whether you're a part of this church, any other church, doesn't matter. Come forward and receive. If you feel like your life is too messed up to be able to come forward, if you feel like you've done some things recently that you just, you don't feel like you're worthy to come forward, here's good news, you aren't. Here's better news, none of us are. If you have committed sins that you are repentant for, but they're still grieving you, come forward, be fed, meet with Jesus at this table. So that's the positive way that we talk about the Lord's Supper all the time. And yet, kind of like, kind of like Jesus talking about judgment, there is also scripture that says, don't do this for the wrong reasons. So twice a year I read this. It's called the exhortation. Dearly beloved in the Lord, if you intend to come to the Holy Communion, of the body and blood of our Savior Jesus Christ. You must consider how St. Paul, in his first letter to the Corinthians, exhorts us all diligently to examine ourselves before we presume to eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For as the benefit is great, if we receive his holy sacrament with a truly penitent heart and full faith, spiritually eating the flesh of Christ and spiritually drinking his blood so that we might be made one with Christ and he with us, if that, is, if, if that benefit is great, so often, so also is the danger great if we take these gifts in an unworthy manner. For then we become guilty of profaning the body and blood of, our, of Christ our Savior, and we eat and drink ourselves to our own condemnation. Therefore, judge yourself 
lest you be judged by the Lord. Firstly, examine your life by the rule of God's commandments. Wherever you have offended, either by thought, word, or deed, confess your sins to Almighty God with the full intention to amend your life. Be ready to make restitution for all injuries and wrongs that you have done to others. And also, be ready to forgive others who have offended you. For otherwise, if you unworthily receive Holy Communion, you will increase your own condemnation. Therefore, repent of your sins, or else do not come to God's holy table. If you have come here today with a troubled conscience, and you need help or counsel, come to me, come see me, or come see some other minister of the gospel, and confess your sins so that you can receive godly counsel, so that you can receive assurance, so that you can receive direction for how to amend your life, and so that you can receive absolution. To do so will, will both satisfy your conscience and remove any doubt. Above all, each of us should give humble and hearty thanks to God for the redemption of the world by the death and passion of our Savior Jesus Christ. He humbled himself even to death on a cross for us sinners who lay in darkness and in the shadow of death so that he could make us children of God and exalt us to everlasting life. Because of his exceedingly great love for us, our Savior Jesus Christ has instituted and ordained this holy mystery as a pledge of his love and for a continual remembrance of his death and passion to our great and endless comfort. So therefore, to him who with the Father and the Holy Spirit we give cont continual thanks, as is both our duty and our joy, submitting ourselves entirely to his holy will and striving to serve him in holiness and righteousness all the days of our life, to him be the glory. Amen. If you feel like you have sins that you haven't repented of, here's more good news. You do. The doctrine of original sin tells us that every single thing that we do in life, even after we become a Christian, is in some way tainted by our sinful nature. But through Jesus' death and his resurrection, each and every one of our sins are forgiven, not just the ones that you remember, not just the ones that you because I don't know about you, but my memory is not what it used to be. And there's things that I've done that I didn't even realize that I've done. And when I remember them, I am comforted by the fact that, oh yeah, just because I couldn't remember them doesn't mean that Jesus didn't know about them. And now that Jesus has died long before I was ever born, after I have become united to him in faith, even the sins that I didn't know about have been forgiven. That's the mystery of, of the radical grace of God to this. Thanks be to God. Will you please stand? The peace of the Lord be always with you. Also with you. Greet one another with signs of peace in Christ.